Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this episode features Dan Rosen. He is the CEO of ARIA, the big industry, record industry body here in Australia. I'll uh, tell you more about him in a moment. Uh, this show is brought to you by the fabulous people who support this show at patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R, podcasts. They're free to listen to, but they are not free to make. And any bit that you can give, you can pledge to this podcast, certainly, certainly helps for me to pay. Andy, who produces the show, and uh, hopefully to be able to pay a show producer to help me organize times to interview people. Uh, for as little as five bucks a month, you can get access to exclusive episodes that only come your way. They're not for everybody, only for patrons of the show. Uh, you get that you know exclusive episode, but then you also get that lovely fuzzy feeling in your tummy that you've done something that helps another person, that other person being me. Well, also Andy, because he gets paid too. Well, I don't get paid. Andy gets paid. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. $1.25 an episode makes a big difference for the show. It makes such a difference in that there would be no show if it weren't for the people that support the show. So if you can, uh, it's about the cost of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, uh, patreon.com slash osher. Also, uh, a bit of an incentive to uh, leave a review on the iTunes store because ratings on the iTunes store and the podcast charts are a culmination of both download numbers and reviews. Uh, so uh, this week, I said last week that I'd choose a comment from random, and the uh, the comment from random uh, random comment goes to uh, it is uh, iTunes reviewer Vanessa Bet who left a review, a very kind review. Uh, Vanessa, if that is your real name, 
if your parents did name you after the girl in a Prince song, uh, shoot us an email, sandosheremail at gmail.com, and I'll organize those exclusive episodes for you. Same goes for this week. I'll choose a comment at random from uh, comments in the iTunes review page for this show, uh, made from the 20th of August on, 20th of August 2016. And uh, that person will get access to all the exclusive episodes that I've, I've made so far. I asked last week, you guys are just so good uh, for listening. Um, people who, if you're listening on the phone, most of the people listen on the phone, I see the stats, and your phone has a camera. Just take a photo with that camera, pull it out of your pocket right now, show me where you're listening. Send it to sendosheremail at gmail.com or on Snapchat or on uh, Instagram or Twitter. I had, I don't know, is potty the right word? Podsy? Pod, potty can sound like a place that Americans go to take a shit. So, a podsy? Does that that work? It's a photo taken on your phone that you're listening to a podcast showing where you're listening to the podcast. Uh, but again, amazing pictures came in from all over the world. Photos from a train out of Shenzhen in China, uh, blowing bubbles in a park in Barcelona, going for a walk through the hills of Adelaide to start the day as the sun came up. I'm grateful, so grateful that I can join you on your journey through this life, whatever you're doing while you're listening to this show and just sending me a pic of wherever you are. Uh, I don't know, makes makes us feel connected, makes me feel connected to you. I kind of like it. Hope your week was okay uh, to check in. I had a really tough week. I had a really tough week. I've been on these new meds for about two months now. And um, the thing with meds, and I've talked about this a bunch of times, they don't kick in straight away and you don't feel the full effects of everything straight away. And it takes a little while for everything to balance out. And... Um, yeah, this week I uh, I had a couple, my first real run of pretty horrible days this week, and uh, thankfully, thankfully I don't know how this happens, but on the on the worst day, the worst day I actually thankfully had an appointment with my psychiatrist, and what do you know? He put my dosage up, which you know that was expected. We had plenty of room to move. I was not the lowest dose he could give me, and you know if you were already on those meds, the easiest thing to do is just increase the dosage. Um. Thankfully, we do have room to move on those meds, but I guess, you know, I just, I was lucky enough to notice that things were shitty and I was lucky enough to know that I was going to go see him that day and lucky to tell him the right things that I had to tell him. So hopefully if you're having a tough day that you're lucky enough to recognize it and that if things are shitty for you, you can recognize it. A mate of mine says the big problem with crazy people is they don't know they're crazy. And it's a tough conversation to have with yourself to go is is the world being nuts or am i and then you go oh fuck it's me it's actually i i try not to be downtrodden but it can be a bit tough to to realize that you're not coping even though you're on meds and you're trying to do everything right it it can be tough and it's also tough to go well fuck this is the rest of my life i gotta take this shit i gotta live with a, a dry fucking mouth and whatever other side effects these drugs give me but the offshoot is that i'm not crazy which is nice. I'll take a dry mouth over crazy. That would be nice. Um, and I'd also, you know, like to not feel plunged into terror and obsession by triggers, which would be nice. So I've got to just be in acceptance that this is what I get, I get to do this so I can keep living a life where I get to be relatively the same as most other people in the world. It is tough to accept this, but that's okay. But a lot, a lot of people are way worse off than me, and and I'm I'm very grateful that what I have is what I have, and it isn't 
what I've seen other people go through. I'm very lucky. Um, and I'm also really grateful that Audrey's so understanding. She came into my office and she took one look at me and she's like, oh, fuck. And I said, yeah, I know, right? And she sat on my lap and she, you know, stroked my hair a bit. And she asked me, what's going on? And uh, luckily at that point, you know, people say that, you know, remember your training. <laughs> so I remembered what did my shrink tell me to do? And she said, what's going on? I said, well, I can feel your weight on my lap and I can feel the way your legs are pushing into mine as you sit on me and I can feel your fingertips as they go through my hair and I can smell your perfume and I can feel your kisses on my cheek. And just describing the tactile nature of, of what's happening and, and I said, that's what's going on. Because all the shit I'm worried about is just happening in my head. It's just a construct of, of these shitty patterns of thinking. It's not actually real, the stuff that's happening in my head. So if I remember what is real, it kind of pushes out, doesn't leave any room for the other stuff. Well, that's what happened that day. I can't say it's going to happen every day, but I'm really, I'm really grateful that she's in my life. Uh, but yeah, so I'm up on my meds. I'm thirsty. I feel like I've been, my mouth feels like I've been just like ripping bongs all morning. You know, at least I'm not nuts today. Well, just today. So let me tell you about my guest. I'm stoked I can bring this one to you. Dan Rosen is the CEO of ARIA. ARIA is the Australian Recording Industry Association. Now, among other things, ARIA, they provide the official pop music charts for Australia. And they, they do a bunch of other stuff, but they also facilitate the annual ARIA Awards, which is the highest a claim that our country can give to a musician. They're mostly peer-reviewed uh, uh, awards, so it's an industry rewarding its own. Uh, it's, it's a pretty exciting thing. I've been lucky enough to host the Arias a few years in a row. Dan has a cracking story, a really great story, of how he actually came to be CEO of Aria, how he made some very important decisions about university education and choosing not to follow it at a certain point in his life. And also, Dan talks about how he became CEO of a recording industry association at a time when the recording industry was disrupted like no other time it had been in its history. And how he sees artists and fans moving forward together so they can help each other in this brave new digital world. Dan's a great chat. And even if you're not into music, listening to how he chose his career path and how he made his decisions about where to study, when to study, what to study, when not to study. All these things are really interesting to listen to, and I certainly hope you get something out of it. So enjoy this conversation with Dan Rosen. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Mate, I'm, I'm stoked you can be here in, in, in the house. It's, um, it's hard to look at you because the view behind you is well, so, you're a, so that's, good. That's okay. You're a, you're, that's why you sit there. Yeah, it's wonderful. You sit there because occasionally a whale will go by, no. which is quite nice. It's, uh, it's incongruent in its display of fiscal uh, uh, reflection upon my actual situation because I, I, I can just afford to rent here but I cannot afford to buy here. So. Well, regardless, you get to wait. I mean, it is one of the world's great, view, great. views, isn't it? You get to look at whales. Um, unfortunately, my, my neighbours downstairs uh, went, you know what, Wednesday? Fuck yeah, doof party. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. 
Uh, so none of it got any sleep last night. So everybody woke up cranky. That's no good. Here in the ranch. Yeah, yeah. Gigi was upset this morning. Audrey was upset this morning. I was upset this morning. Dog but at least fine. people are still having doof parties on a Wednesday night. Oh, man. Sid- Sydney, Sydney lockout laws have not, <laughs> have not fully killed the vibe. Oh, we'll talk all about that. Uh, did, you, um, did you grow up near here? No, I grew up in Melbourne. Ah. So I'm a Melbourne boy, uh, transplanted up here to Sydney. My mum actually is a Sydney girl who met my father at a school camp when they were 14, 15. And, no. Yes, and, uh, and a, uh, had a long-distance relationship in those days between Melbourne and Sydney and then... Via letter? Yeah, and my mum, I think she moved to Melbourne the day after they got married. And uh, How old were they when they got married? Uh, they, they must have been... My dad was 23. Five, my mum was 23, so not, you know, not young, young in those days. Hang on, so there were other people in between? Did they go on dates with other people or? It's not a conversation I have with them. I think my father probably did. Really? Yeah. No, I think, no, he definitely did. He tells me he did. Whether my mum did or not, I don't know. So so I used to come up to Sydney quite a bit to visit, visit my grandparents who lived in Dover Heights. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is Bondi back in those days was not considered a place where you really wanted to hang out. So I didn't even used to come to Bondi. It's pretty smacky down here. Yeah. A lot so, of junkies, a lot of housing commission. Yeah. So, we, you know, you'd go to the harbour beaches, but Bondi was kind of frowned upon. My father used to say you used to have something called a Bondi moustache because of the uh, the sewerage would flow out. You'd come up and you might have a <sighs> something on your upper lip. Yeah, just on the uh, underneath the golf courses where the out. Yeah. Stewage outfall was yeah um, back in that. I remember coming to Bondi when that was still like that. I was a little kid. Yeah, it's just the bit. But now you know it's one of the great great things. I, I taught myself to surf when I moved to Sydney five years ago, and I hadn't surfed yesterday or two mornings ago this week. I got back out and you know got on a wave as the sun you know rose up over North Bondi, and it was a it was a religious experience. It's pretty it's pretty nuts when you. You think I, mean, I was? I was living in uh, in Los Angeles. I was living in Venice, and the water there is pretty nasty. I won't yeah. lie. Um, but I remember when I was working at Channel V, I'd be like in a meeting at ten o'clock in the morning. Like I was surfing with dolphins three hours ago. Yeah. Now I'm sitting at a boardroom table. Now I'm swimming with sharks. What is what is what a city? Yeah. What a what a city. It's you know, there's very few places in the world you can do that. I think probably yeah here Rio Ma- maybe. Rio yeah maybe but I know where I'd rather live. <laughs> Sydney and Rio, absolutely. That's for sure. So, um, what was because uh, before you were, you know, the, the 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 kingpin of the Australian music industry. You were... they're, they're your words, not mine. <laughs> Dennis isn't listening. It's fine. Um, <laughs> before you were the kingpin of the Australian music industry, you actually you came into it through music. So I'm interested because I I too was was in a band, and I too yeah. found that longevity and a life around music would be guaranteed for me if I just stood, stood, stood off stage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is a tough conversation to have with yourself, but yes. I'd love to get into that. Yeah. When did you first know that music was it for you? I think, I was, you know, one of my earliest memories was my mum picking me up from school when I was eight years old and, and telling me that every breath you take had won Song of the Year at the Grammys. And it was like, you know, I was so excited. I was a big police fan and I'd went out and bought synchronicity on on red vinyl which i still have oh my god that is such an amazing record such an amazing record it was and but at that time i didn't realize that not every eight-year-old kid was you know listening to the police and 
Cold Chisel was the other, they were my two favourite bands. Quite opposite ends of the spectrum yes. as far as musical exploration goes. Yeah, uh, but I just, something about it. And when you're younger, I didn't, it, t- it takes a bit longer to work out that not everybody shares your interests. Yeah. Uh, and that it's, you know, not something that everybody's listening to music so much. And I had piano lessons as a kid and just started playing in bands, in school bands and and more and more getting into music. What was the first pop song you – because, you know, when you're doing piano lessons, you're like, why do I have to learn? And they're, they're yeah. like – it's almost like if you're doing uh, karate or taekwondo, they're, they're set forms to make your fingers learn how to do different things. But you're like, where can I play that? Where can I play the intro to synchronicity? Where can, yeah, you, teach yeah, exactly. me? Where can you teach me that? It was probably <laughs> Maniac, you know, the song. You learned how to play that? I think that was because it was almost classical. So I think I got away with it with, uh-huh. the, with the teacher. And then Elton John, Billy Joel were probably the two. Yeah, kind that's of the first. Ga- Billy Joel's the gateway drug for yeah. a lot of piano players. Yeah. It was certainly for me. You get the songbook. You know, oh, yeah, the has, big grey one, yeah. Where it has all the songs there. And, and then from there I taught myself about chord, like chords rather than rather than reading the sheet music, just reading the guitar tab chords but playing them on the piano kind of opened up the ability to do that. And then you kind of start making up your own songs when you – I was probably 15, 16 when I started writing your own songs and just went from there. Now, pianos are hard to lug around. Did you yeah. have – Well, that, that was my my – Insight was when I finished school and we went to Byron for our uh, break up. What do they call it? Schoolies. Schoolies. I'm not sure it was schoolies back then. It probably was. And we went to Byron and I just remember seeing all these cool guys on the beach playing guitar and all the girls, you know, swooning over these guys. I'm like, well, I can't play piano on the beach to try and pick up a girl. So I've got to learn how to play guitar, which I think is most of the reason most guys pick up Me, guitar. Absolutely. I was eight. Yeah. And I saw I saw the maths. You guitar. saw the light early. Yeah, guitar plus me equals the movie moment. Never happened. Never happened. Not once. Well I then went I remember went into the Bondi the next day walking through the Bondi market and there was some guy selling a used guitar for forty bucks. And that was it. I bought that guitar and taught myself guitar and that was my, you know, my turning point into playing guitar. Right, and so, so you, but you'd already come to guitar with all the, so you'd already had a few interesting things going on in your brain. You'd, you'd read the sheet music, you'd seen the chord structures. Yeah, the I'd, played, I'd been the, the keyboard player in in my school bands, which were named, I think we were called the Lampshades. Yes. We were Flying Circus. Right. That was that was us. And then we were the Brown Hornets. Yeah. And then. Uh, what so covers then, were you doing? Uh, well, at, at school, it was pretty, at school we did. Beatles, Crowded House. We did a couple of Crowded House songs. I think then right at the end it was Nirvana. But, you know, Nirvana and keyboards. I became superfluous. (laughs) So by then it's like... I I know too many chords for this. I I need to play. I need to learn guitar. So from the guitar I would then play in university bands. I was at law school. Yeah. And our band at law school was called The Well Hung Jury. And Charlie Pickering was in the well-hung jury. And Charlie and I, we, 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 we do, you know, romanticise that we should have a comeback at some stage. So that was, you know, that was our cover band at, at uni and we would play all the law school barbecues, that, which was a big deal, let yeah. me tell you. At Monash University out at Clayton campus, the law LSS, law school barbecues, were a big deal. Why? They were just... 
they were out on the lawn and they would be a good piss up and, you know, we would attract people from all the other schools and it would be like, you know, a couple thousand people. So you could be performing to huge crowds. Wow. Admittedly of law students. But, but still, you know, that's, a, that's an incredible way to start getting to know people and creating a network and learning who does what and, yeah. and meeting people that can maybe help you later in your career. And then I uh, was just, I just used to get really excited because I'd be, still be the keyboard guy, but I'd be able to play two or three songs on the guitar. And that was my moment to get out in the front. Pull some shapes. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs> What kind of tracks were you? Were you oh, then we were like all we were like probably Triple J, yeah. whatever was big on that moment. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. You know, we do song two. We did one day. We did Lakini's Juice by <laughs> Live, which was went down like a lead balloon. Yeah, uh, we did like the distance by oh, yeah. Cake. The cake. I think cr- that's what track. um. Charlie, what do we do? He used to do um, Bloodhound Gang stuff. Like uh-huh. we, would, we would do very random right. things. But fun. Great fun. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome fun. But music was, at that point, music was never a, I could do this for a living? No, I think it was always something that I loved. Yeah. Uh, but I was, you know, studying and I was still pretty into my footy AFL uh-huh. at that stage. You so are that, a tall man. Yeah. So that was kind of my, probably until I was 20, 21, I'd take – my weekends were more play, were playing football. Why, why, why law school? Um, my dad was a lawyer. My, and I, I loved LA law when I was a kid. That was like my show. Mm. And I just thought maybe I'd be Victor Sefuentes one day. <laughs> <laughs> How good is that name? Victor Sefuentes. Pretty good. Yes. Uh, and I just, I was studying sciences and, in year 11 and I just, at the end of year 11, thought, you know what, I don't, want to do science stuff. I like the humanities and mm. it just made sense. You know, you choose these things when you're 15, 16, you don't really have any idea what it means yeah. to be a lawyer. You just... Did you see it through? Absolutely, yeah. I've got a master's of law. Wow. Would you believe? Did so, you go and do all the stuff where you have to lug files and shit around town? Yeah, I did, I did my articles yeah. uh, in Melbourne at a firm called Minter Ellison in that big corporate law firm. And, you know, I had a really good time, to be honest. By that stage, I was playing music pretty seriously at night time. And I would be, you know, what, like you know, Clark Kent-like in a way. Yeah. <laughs> or with Bruce Wayne. In, yeah. in the day, I'd be wearing a suit and then I would uh, drive to gigs and have my, you know, black jeans, black T-shirt in the back of the car and, and kind of get changed in the car park and go to rehearsal or go play some shows. And what band was that? That band at the time was called The Visitors uh, and we would play quite a lot around Melbourne, all the yeah. SB front bars. What and, kind of music like. was it? That was indie rock. That was originals. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Jangly I, guitar for you? I was, yeah, between, I had a, a Fender Rhodes, a 54 oh, yeah. key Fender Far Rhodes, out, which was man. unbelievable. Nothing sounds like that. Oh, which I found in the trading post, you know, back in did. the day. Yeah. Remember, we found in the trading post, we drove out to, you know, the northern suburbs of Melbourne and, you know, this, this uh, woman took us upstairs to the attic. You know, it was, you know, like dust. It was really like something, you know, Indiana Jones where yeah. you found a dusty attic and pulled away and there's this magnificent uh, perfect condition and it was a small one because they're usually 73 keys and yeah. this one was a, a 54 key. Even still, to carry it around is like lugging a dead, a dead body around. These things are 
massive. Did it have the case still on? Full it? case. Well, wow, the whole thing. Because it came with its own case. It came was, with its, its, own, its own, case. own road case. Yeah, with its own case, and then there was a, a compartment where the legs would be in, yeah. and you would, you know, these chrome legs that you would, yeah. and they would be on on a, you know, a, a eighty degree angle. It was unbelievable. This thing. I've still got it. Actually, wow. my brother has it at his house. Uh, and nothing we, sounds like those. Things. No, nothing. Sounds, no. And nothing feels like those. Things. No, nothing. That's the feels other like thing. They each have a different feel. It's like a B three. They each yeah. sound and feel completely different. One B three won't sound the same as another. No. And lugging that thing up the there's a great venue in Melbourne called Revolver. Yeah, I remember it. But the stairs straight up are straight up. There's no landing. And lugging that thing up, you would be like, surely I can find an emulator that could make this sound. <laughs> And, you know, we'd go on tour up the East Coast and, and you know, you'd, you'd lug that thing around. And it, just, it was kind of, it ended up being a labour of love. And the interesting thing, when you tour with a band, the first time you try to pack the van, it's an impossibility. Mm-hmm. Like, you're like, there is no way we're getting through two weeks, three weeks and fitting everything in. But by the end, it's like a game of Tetris. Oh, you're all over it. And you know exactly what goes where and how the positions. When I was, and- a, when I was a roadie for a couple of years, um, we definitely had a bit of that going on mm. and uh, we had this particular pant tech. It was a cover band so yeah. they owned all, their own st- all their, owned all their own stuff and you just absolutely knew, you know, particular combinations, which cases went where and uh, I used to actually relish in I could pack this better. I right. Could, give me the bar case and the drum traps case and then I'm going to use that to weigh down this and then blah, 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 and then suddenly you'd end up with like room for 20 more, yeah. milk, 20 more milk crates <laughs> yeah. that you feed from the back of the... The bakery next door for lead cases. It's a it's it's a wonderful thing. So that band visitors, and then we changed our name to Barefoot. Uh, we would you know did quite a bit of touring, put out a couple of EPs. I think I, so I had our first EP was produced by Scott Kahn from Kids in the Kitchen. Wow. Yeah. And our second EP was produced by Greg Arnold from Things of Stone and Wood. Happy birthday, Helen. Happy birthday, Helen. Yeah, we, and I love that band. For, you know, me and my best mate, uh, Dion, from Melbourne, we, yeah, we even drove to Heidelberg one day because they had a song called Heidelberg. You know, these silly things you do when you're 17, 18, you're really into bands. So that was a real thrill when you got these guys who you like. But I look back now and realise they were just, you know, at the time, uh, Greg Arnold, you know, you're probably mid to late 20s and trying to put some dollars together because even though you think – at the time, these guys are these unbelievable bands. You realise now they're playing, you know, a few hundred people at local pubs. It's still hard to it's hard to make a living doing that. And they were just like, let's take some. And for just for people who don't maybe aren't familiar with the recording process, mm. home recording has kind of changed. It has producers changed. coming in. Yeah. Can you tell folks what a producer's job is in that situation? Yeah, I think you know this was you know over twenty years ago. It frightens me to say that, but. At that time, you needed to go into a studio to record. The ability to home record wasn't really yet there. So uh, it was going somebody who even knew how to work the studio and to hire the studio and uh, would give you some insight about the best way to record. So your producer is really like the director of a film. Got it. Uh, rather than the producer of a film. So the director of a film, he's the one who has the vision mm-hmm. and pulls the technical people together. They, no, they may not necessarily have the technical skills to put the microphone in the right place, but they will say, you know, sonically, this is what we want to do, this is the vision, and they would work that out with the band. So they would then you know, say, well, you know, we should record in this format or for this song, maybe you want to think about 
you know, changing the bridge or changing the lyrics. Oh, so there's a bit of arrangement. There is a bit of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, certainly when you're young and you're dealing with someone who's had success, yeah. you listen to what they have to say. We had um, our uh, second EP, we got uh, Dave Atkins, who's the – now I think he's drumming for Azalea Banks as she tours around America. He drummed right. for Wolfmother for a while. He was the drummer for uh, Pangaea and um, went on to begin the Resin Dogs. Wow. Um, so he produced our EP and we just – we would do anything he told us. Yeah. Anything he told us because oh. he was just his god as far as we were concerned. Yeah, and like even – yeah, the, then the next band was uh, we had, was Second Dan, which, which won Triple J Unearthed, which was then – actually was a home recording. Uh, me and the drummer from uh, Barefoot at the time, we kind of had a side project – and you cheated on your other band. Yeah, we kind of cheated on the other and band. And then you the won other... Triple J on Earth yeah. with it. Oh, that's like, oops, we had a baby. Sorry, got to go. Exactly. Well, the band had kind of split up and was splitting up, so it was, it was, its time had come. But, and that was just a complete whirlwind. That was yeah. one of the great. Which Triple J on Earth was that? This was 2003. Okay, so a few years after Grinspoon yeah. had really then, blown that one. Yeah, a couple the, of years before Missy Higgins. It was when yeah. Unearth was the uh, you know very big thing because Triple J would choose a state yeah. and say we're unearthing Victoria. Yeah. And they would choose. Killing Heidi were a Triple J Unearth. It could have been. Yeah, they were, yeah. Yeah, so it was a big deal. Yeah. And it was one of those moments where, you know, it was a life-changing moment. Yeah. You kind of gone from, a, you know, being a playing around and thinking, you know, I can write a, I can write a decent tune and being obsessed with all the bands on Triple J to having that incredible moment where you're driving in your car and one of your songs comes on the radio and it's like this is the coolest thing ever. And now at this point are you still lugging articles around the city of Melbourne? You know, at that time I was working as an advisor to the Australian government, the Minister for Communications. Oh, wow. Richard Alston. And I had this very bizarre moment because they were beating up the ABC oh. at the time, as coalition governments often want to do. And I had to go to his office and say, uh, you know, Minister, i just got to let you know that I've actually just won ABC Triple J unearthed. Uh, so it was a little bit of an interesting conversation. Well, he was very supportive. I mean, I, I, had, uh, I had a really – I had one of those amazing weeks – that week where I had won, I'm going to sound like a wanker, I don't mean to, but I'd won a, a Fulbright scholarship to do my Masters of Law in America. Wow. At the beginning of the week and at the end of the week had won Triple J Unearthed. That's pretty much uh, what are you going to go and do with your life, yeah, buddy? Yeah, and it was, wow. real, it was a really, you know, it was wonderful, it was amazing. Yeah. I actually thought, the tri- and the Triple J call I thought was a prank. It was Robbie Buck. It was Robbie Buck. Robbie and um, who else would it have been? Uh, I remember Robbie Buck called, and then I uh, and then uh, there was a guy called Chris Scadden at the time was running Unearth, who's now running ABC Music yes. as a whole, and yes. him and I, you know, worked together quite closely. Yeah. So it's a funny thing that we both started in that yeah. realm. Uh, yeah, and I had that kind of real, you know, fork in the road. What did, did you call your folks? Did you call your girlfriend? Or did, what did oh, you do? I was still living at home. So oh, right. I think my I think uh, I think I came down for Shabbat dinner on yeah. that Friday night, and I think I said to my mum, oh, I think I just won Triple Town Earths," and she's just like, "You've got to make sure you do your masters of law, though." <laughs> <laughs> so what? 
what do you do? So you've got this scholarship to study at, at, at what uni in the States? Well, you can go anywhere uh, Far out. in America. So I ended up – what I ended up doing was, I guess, you know, Solomon's wisdom splitting the baby. I, I deferred the scholarship for a year for as long as you could and uh, took the year off and toured and put out a record and, took, you know, played music and – so that was pretty cool. But all during that year I was still very torn between am I going to stay, continue to play music and follow the band or go over and, and do my studies. Yeah. What was the moment where you went, this isn't for me? I don't think there ever was. I probably think there still hasn't really? been. Really? Yeah. I, oh. I think it was more that I figured, you know what, I've got this unbelievable opportunity to be paid to go study in America. I decided, I toured all the universities, you know, I went to Stanford and Harvard and Yale and all the unbelievable. And then when you do that sort of thing, they go, oh, Dan, we're so happy you're here. Yeah. Come and check out, da, 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 because they want the... Yeah, a little bit. I mean, those guys, they've got people from all over the world, so they're not that impressed by, you know, another yeah. Fulbright scholar from right. Australia. They're probably hoping that, you know, the, the Queen of England's kids are coming. Right. But, you know, they do, they do, certainly help but then I got to NYU and which is you know which is situated in Greenwich Village yeah in downtown Manhattan it's crazy and I was kind of like well, well I can actually go here to university because you know Monash University in Melbourne is a great university but it's in Clayton and I don't it, know where that is well Clayton is you know the just you know, where it's just completely a soulless campus built in the 60s. It looks like something out of East Germany. You oh, know, okay. you know, it's like got real no, brutalist architecture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's got – there's nothing to do anywhere around there. You drive there and you leave. Okay. Uh, so I didn't. it's not like a Melbourne Uni or Sydney Uni or RMIT where you're in the city and, you know, you've got a cafe, then you've got a school and then you've yeah. got a, a bar. This was isolated. And so the, the thing to live in the greatest city in the world and, you know, the law school's there and next door is where Bob Dylan p- played at the bitter end, you're like, oh, this is awesome. So that was my, really, my decision-making was based on the fact that I thought, well, you know what, how bad can it be to go to New York for a year? Uh, I thought I'd come, I'd come come back and do some shows and play some shows over in, in, in the States. Let's try and do both. Uh and that was the plan. How did it work out? It worked out pretty well till I fell in love with New York and thought, well, I want to live in New York. And, and so I, I re-established the band with some American guys and continued to play. That and, were your songs? So you could, yeah. Oh, okay then. Yeah. So that was, that was, that was the best. I mean, New York is, yeah. I think I say Australia is the best country in the world, but I think New York's still the best city in the world. It just has a thing. It's like it's less – I look at it, the more I think about New York City, it's, it's less of a, a place and like, almost like a giant organism yeah. that, is, that has this superpower. It has this subway system that people can live a fair way out and for not a lot of money can get into the centre of it. It has this um, state-run steam system that lives underneath it that heats the bottom 70 or 80 blocks mm. in the winter – so your heating is taken care of. You know, it's just this extraordinary garbage collection that is, 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 and everyone's so packed in there. Yeah, that that's where 
the, the conflict of people bumping into each other randomly is where incredible things happen. And you only get that when you get that compacting of humanity into a certain space is when you get that excitement and Absolutely. the innovation that comes out of that. It really is a remarkable place. Yeah. And it's the sort of city that if you landed and said, I want to be an astronaut, people would be like, that's awesome. Yeah. How can I help you be that's, an astronaut? That's what I loved about America. Yeah. And that's what I think in my, our country, Australia, we could do with a bit more of. Yeah, I think we could. We could do with a bit more I mean, of. they could pro- – America could probably do with a bit more of our pull your head in, mate. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a little okay. Bit. But there's, the, there's a balance. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, – I'm hopeful that we're getting a bit better on that. And cele- I think we are. Yeah, and celebrating our success. I'm seeing a bit more in music now as well. Like there should be – we shouldn't be shy to want to be successful in what we do. No. And you can be successful without being arrogant and without being a dick. But there's also in the States, and I've talked about this before, is that success is not only a currency. Potential of success is a currency yes. in the States. Yes. Here, potential of success is tickets, mate, you know. Yeah. Give us a call when you get there, yeah. And then when you get there, pff, who do you think you are? Yeah. Whereas there, it's like when I, you know, I I got off the plane in LA and I said like I host live television and I'm here to host live network primetime. They go, great. You need to go visit this guy and yeah. this guy and I can help you talk to that guy, that guy, that guy. What do you need? What can I do? How can I help you? Yeah, They're right into it. Everyone's into it, and I think everybody is is on their own journeys as well and there's kind of like it's not a zero-sum game. Yeah. You know, I think there's a sense that, well, if I help you, you might help me and then we can all rise together. Yeah. Which is a wonderful thing and I certainly felt that when I landed from a music perspective uh, downtown in Manhattan, there was a scene where there was a lot of songwriting and people would, you know, sh- say, I oh, come around, let's write a song and let's, let's play together. And that didn't exist as much in Melbourne when I, when I was kind of coming through. I think it's maybe ha- happening a bit more now. Uh, but certainly back in, that, in, in, in the States, that's kind of par for the course. But I guess in the difference between Melbourne and New York is that in New York, they're at the time, we're talking mid-90s, late 90s, uh, sorry, mid-2000s, yeah. late 2000s, there literally was a record company on every corner. It yeah, wasn't just the big five or the big three, whatever it is now. Yeah. There really was, oh, blah, blah, records. It's just down the street. It's, you know, he gets his pressings done over there in Brooklyn, but you can put out a seven-inch. Yeah. It can actually happen. It can happen and there was a lot of, you know, there was still, you know, that little uh, place, Shanae, or that's where Buckley got signed and that place, Living Room, that's where Nora Jones. And you could still go and hang out with Nora, Nora Jones. Like a, she would just be playing at the Rockwood Music Hall or the Living Room. I, I still remember my producer at the time, a guy called Andy Baldwin, who now lives in New York and has got some great studios, came to stay with me and, and I said, oh, mate, let's just go down to the living room. You never know who could play, who could be playing. And it's a free gig and you walk in and there's on stage Nora Jones and Bonnie Raitt. It's like, you know, there's <laughs> 25 Grammys between them up on stage just, yeah. you know, jamming out. And it's a gold coin, don't, you know, they just, they're not, they don't have coins there. It's like uh, they pass the bucket around and you just put in you know, what you think. And so there was a, a wonderful scene there and there yeah. was this place called the Rockwood Music Hall uh, that we used to play a lot at and it started as a room, we're on radio so you can't see this, but, you know, no bigger than a, you know, a, a small living room uh-huh. uh, that had a baby grand piano in it and it could fit maybe 40 people in. Yeah. And it was just the greatest gig ever. Or, you know, the whole 
neighbourhood would come down and then they've expanded and now they've got three rooms. Wow. And it's one of the great places. Yeah. And, uh, was the Bonnie Raitt Nora Jones night the night you went only in New York? Yeah, well, that was a, a place called the Living Room. Absolutely. And you get that, all, you get that a lot in, in New York where any night of the week could be the greatest night of your life. You know, yeah. you could just walk out of a restaurant, it's a Monday night and there's Bono and you end up at the bar, you're having a drink and it's... See, get, I, I felt that way about Sydney growing up in Brisbane. Mm. I, you know, coming down here, my big brother would come down here and tell me stories of like, we were just walking down the street and there was a sign that says, tonight Don Burrows, five bucks. It's like, holy shit. Like Don Burrows, one of the great, yeah. great jazz flautists of, uh, of, of Australian uh, music. And like, he was just playing a gig. Yeah. Just playing a gig on a Tuesday at the basement. Just come on down, Don bon Burrows, five bucks. Come on in. I couldn't believe that such a place existed. Yeah. And then, you know, you hear about what you're talking about. It's another level. But I think, level. We, I think we do have that, you know, we... I'm not, I'm not saying that we should have an inferiority to that. I mean, it, you know, New York does is is the center of the world in that in that realm. But I haven't missed it yeah. since I've been back in Sydney, and I really thought that I would. So for me, you know, Sydney has an incredible capacity to you know keep you interested, and and I think you know you've got incredible nature. The culture is pretty good, I think. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We, you know, we could, we can certainly do better. How on, long? On that. How long did you end up staying in America? I was there almost seven years. Wow. Yeah. So how did you? Once the Fulbright was over, how Fulbright did you end up getting paid? I joined a tech startup and was started by an Aussie, and and uh, it was an online video, and we kind of helped grow that. And which one took it on the Nasdaq? It was called Rue Media. I remember it. And uh, so you were there for the IPO. Yeah, I was there for the IPO. Wow. We rang the thing on, on, Na- on NASDAQ and all of that. Oh, wow. It's then in, in, imploded. Well, that's okay. That after happens. I left, but it did implode. But it was an incredible ride. That was amazing. So I was, you know, Where still, was your office? We start, our first office was up on 45th between 2nd and 3rd. Nice. And then I, I ended up running the, the Americas. So I had, you know, America, and, North America and South America, which was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and... And we had an office just opposite the Flatiron Building on, on Fifth Avenue between Amazing. 21st so and 22nd what, you're, Street. So you're late 20s in this... Yeah, early 30s. Early 30s in this tech startup. Yeah, tech startup world. So I was kind Holy of, you know, moly. doing tech startup during the days and playing music and doing some tours. A couple of guys, yeah, and so it was... It was it was awesome, you know. I had a, we had an office in Buenos Aires. We had an office in Sao Paulo. You know, it was it was 
Oh. I only got to go down there once, once or twice. Once or twice, I was in Brazil twice, Argentina once. Yeah, far out. So yeah, it was. Uh, and you know what? New York was the first place where, if I said, you know, I'm I'm working in tech with a law degree and playing in a band, that no one was like, well, that's strange. Because people in New York is like, well, I'm a model, but I'm studying astrophysics and, uh-huh. you know, I've got a uh, zine that I run in Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, everyone is, is juggling. Come bit. over, I'll cook you some, I'll drink, you drink some of my kombucha. Exactly. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's that sense that it's okay to be multifaceted and yeah. to have a few strings to your bow, which I loved because that had always been who I was here and it felt a bit, Strange is not not the right word, but you know, it felt like I would maybe have to apologise for it, and that could have been me rather than anyone else. Mm. But I never felt that in New York. When you get to New York, I've tried to go on dates in New York, yeah, failed, yeah, because there really is the, as you said, it's the. So I'm an astrophysicist, I model, yeah, uh, because I, you know, I I model but only for uh, this one particular uh, photographer that shoots in 10 by 8. I'm his muse. And um, what do you do? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, Australian Idol and uh, radio. She's like, yeah, okay. Meanwhile, there's like just some fuck off Wall Street dude who's, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you've got to find your, your rhythm and your yeah. niche in New York. And uh, if you get in the wrong pool to be dating, it's a very scary place. Oh, my God. I... I uh, have been I was married when I was there the first time oh no well when I spent the most amount of time there I was married and uh, we'd go out to the Hamptons on the, in the summers and some of those parties we'd go out with our mate who were there's a Wall Street guy big Wall Street guy and he'd, he'd see the ladies that were work, that were working those parties and I say that you know that, that's what they were doing yeah that was a currency there that's what the boys were there for that's what the girls were there for and these are the women that you know worked at the firm across the street, who were just as hardcore in the finance world and just as smart and just as intense. And you just see these two people come together and just go, "Holy fuck! Wow!" Mm. You know, <laughs> just yeah. I think I wasn't in that. World. Oh my god! I have no chance, <laughs> no chance, because these are girls who are like, if I play this right, I really can marry a billionaire. I yeah. actually can. I really there is actually one. Yeah. And I think, you know, you spend your time in New York avoiding those kind of girls <laughs> because that's not anyone who wants that is probably not someone you want to go on a date with. So, yeah, yeah I, I think you can, you can get trapped in that. But thankfully, I think from a combination of having a, um, you know, being at uni to start with and then playing in the band, it kind of takes you in different, different circles. Yeah. And you meet a lot of, you know, the, the Australian vibe in New York just started to... Uh, tick over when I arrived. I think we got a the E3 visa. Which it just cha- started? I ju- or started in 2005, like a year or two after I got there. So uh, Australians were still a bit of a novelty when I arrived. And, and then 10,000 a year turn up. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, now it's certainly, you know, different to that. I, but Australians are incredibly well liked in America. Yeah, the, the Americans love Australians. We work really hard. We work hard. We're good people. We've got a good sense of humour. We're... Uh, you know, on the whole, we get Americans. Yeah. We understand the cultural references because we're raised with it. Yeah. You know, I think for our parents' generation, it was the UK. Yes. But, you know, for us, for our generation, I think that we are raised with more American 
music, television, movies. Mm -hmm. So we understand the yellow school bus because I saw it on Ferris Bueller. Yeah, yeah. like you understand, you understand all of their cultural references. So it's it's a pretty easy thing to fit. When did you go? It's time to go home. I thought it was uh, it was I was coming up to seven. Oh, probably six years in, and I was actually. It was. I had a birthday in Atlanta. I had to go down there for work, and I was sitting at the bar on my own, thinking to myself, "I actually want to be around my family." I think, and I had. Then the next weekend, we were up at the Hamptons, but in a place called Montauk, which at the time, sort of the very end, was the, yeah, the end. So it was kind of the less, the least shishi mm. of the Hamptons, but it's now become quite shishi, I think, because uh, it was the furthest away. And you probably couldn't fly your helicopter there. Mm. And I remember it was, a, you know, spent all Sunday at the beach and it was just, you know, the best. And then I was thinking, oh, shit, I've got to get back to Manhattan, you know, three and a half, four hours away. I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could just, you know, spend more time living at the beach? And I thought, hang on a second, I come from Australia. I can do that. <laughs> there is a place. <laughs> and I think those two moments were like, hang on a second, I'm not sure I want to be... American. I'm not sure I want to live in America for the rest of my life, and I'm not. Sh- I want. I, I realize I wanted to have family, and I don't know if I want my kids to play baseball. And I thought, why not see if I can do something, move back to Australia, and I just kind of put the intention out there. And I got this phone call. I remember I was walking on Second Street between First and First Avenue and Second Avenue because this is unbelievable old cemetery in the middle of New York. Mm. The real estate now would be worth a fortune and there's a guy buried there called Preserved Fish is his name, which I always loved. This is a beautiful cemetery. And as I was walking past, I got a phone call going, oh, you know, Dan, we've got your name. Would you ever consider coming back to Australia for a job? I'm saying, yeah, you know, I'm kind of open to it. I said, what's the job? And they said, CEO of ARIA. I said, ARIA, like, as in the music. They're like, yeah. I'm like, well, it's certainly worth having a, you know, send me through the job spec. So kind of when I started making the decision in my head that I wanted to come back, I, you know, had this opportunity and and I was, uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I read the job description and it was pretty much, the first time that everything that I was interested in and had done was on one page. Wow. Or one and a half pages. How did you get the word out there? What, did you just call you know, home and I, say, I'm going to come back, I, keep your ear out? I think so. I'm not sure how someone got my resume. I, I really can't remember putting my resume in for anything earlier than that, but I must have – someone must have had my resume on file. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, it was a really – Incredible bout of synchronicity, mm. which I come back to my first record. It's red I'm vinyl, like, mate. Yeah, the power I, of the red and vinyl. And I believe in synchronicity. You know, there there is a there was an element of that, and I think I was a long shot for the job because I was, you know, I think it was thirty three or thirty four, and and they certainly the recruiter told me that you know you're not the number one candidate because they, you know they think you're a bit young, and but I actually thought to myself, you know what. And this was with the American in me at the time where you're a little bit more mm. – this was like after spending six and a half years in New York, I thought, well, you know what? If there's someone in Australia who understands music, law, policy and technology 
better than me, then good luck to them. But I reckon... Was that what you told the recruiter? Pretty in the yeah, something like that. Because I came back here with a very similar way of speaking. Which is interesting because you yeah. never would have said that. Never. In Australia. And no. I wouldn't say it now, being but back in Australia. It's not, but here's I remember in America I was taught it's not bragging if no, you it's can not. back it up. Correct. If you can back it up, it's fine. It's like look, I appreciate that, but I've got this, 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 this. So if you can find someone else, then that's great. Good for them. But in the meantime, I'll be here and this is what I need. Yeah. And it, people call you back and go, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, and that's and it's and it is the one thing about America that America teaches you. It's not bragging; you're telling the truth. Yes. And when you first go to America, you have to untrain yeah. yourself from being very humble. And when people go, "What are you done?" Oh, not much. You know, I've just kind of yeah, yeah. And if, if you say that in America, they think, "Well, you've not done anything." Yeah. Uh, they're used to people inflating. Yeah. So just the fact that you're telling the truth, you're you know streets ahead of, of most people there. Yeah. And so it was a very – it was an interesting process to go through uh, all of that. And it just – could you talk about the what was Aria trying to do by hiring you? What was the transition? Obviously, the music industry since I've started, I started in 94. Yeah. Or a roadie, I started in 92. Mm. Does, it's unrecognised. Yeah. Unrecognisable. CDs was four years on the market when yeah. I started. So by hiring you, by hiring this kind of young gun who's been on the Cena, Cena company float on NASDAQ, that's been in New York, that's been at the face of the startup scene, that's won Triple J on Earth, that's toured, that's travelled, you know, to bring someone like that to run the Australian Recording Industry Association, what were they trying to achieve? Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, transitioning to a digital world. And, and that for me, I remember the board asked me, well, I never – I did all my interviews via video and one of them I actually had to go down to the – our equivalent in America down in Washington and the interview was like, you know, three in the morning or something because that was the time differences. I remember the board said to me, why would you want to do something in the music business? Everyone says music industry is stuffed. And I said, you know what? Number one, I love music. But number two, people love music. We do not have a problem with consumption. People love music. You don't have to train people to like music. There's a new generation of kids. So the one thing that hasn't changed since the 80s is there's another boy band that 13-year-old girls love and there's another pop act that all these kids are still loving and there's another indie band that all the kids at university loves. And, you know, you'll go to Splendour on the weekend and there are 20-year-old kids the same way I was singing along to the songs from their favourite band they heard on Triple J. So that haven't, hasn't changed. We People love music. It's something inherent and intrinsic in the human condition. And I think in Australia in particular, music is a very strong part of the culture. We just had a problem with how you monetize it. And to me, I always thought, well, that's a solvable problem. If you were trying to sell hula hoops or yo-yos that go in and out of fashion, then that's a tougher gig. But actually selling something that people love and trying to promote that, I thought that was a worthwhile challenge. And, and I really thought it was a worthwhile challenge and, and I still do. So, you know, I, I was a kid who cut out the ARIA charts sitting in Caulfield and having a bottom drawer filled with ARIA charts and, you know, sitting at home watching the Arias being so excited when UMI won all the awards because they were like, you know, I'd follow those guys when they put out their first EPs and went to go see them play at Greville Street Records. And so I thought, well, if I can actually... I 
thought to myself, well, if I could go back and tell that eight-year-old kid you could go and be, you know, CEO of ARIA, he'd be going, that's awesome. Go do it. So that's, I thought, well, go do it. What did you, what kind of, as someone who's seen the company culture of, uh, of a startup and the exciting startup scene in the States and certainly being to visit other companies and seeing those cultures yeah. and the excitement and the, the money that follows and, and you know, the cultures of creation and innovation, when you got to ARIA, what did you notice? Yeah, I mean, it's very different. But, you know, the number one thing was that it was filled with passionate music people and that is the key. I think people that – I think because the music industry went through that massive change and all the money, the easy money had gone out of it, I think that meant that also a lot of the people who were just attracted to it for the money and the status kind of drifted out. I know a few record reps that are real estate agents now. Yeah. Because it's just selling. It is selling. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's, there was that element that the people left in the music business wanted to be in the music business and mm. cared about music and loved music. And there was certainly – I got that sense walking into ARIA uh, and PPCA, which is the other company that I run, which is the licensing arm. People there really wanted to be there. People were passionate about music and they were up for the challenge to try to transition into the digital world. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm five years in and it's, it's been a lot of interesting challenges along the way, but it's been, it's been awesome. I live with a, a 12-year-old girl and in six months she's going to officially be my stepdaughter. Never, see her, never seen her pay for a song once. Mm. Is she on one of the – what's – she on a streaming service or she's uh, YouTube? She loves my, uh, my Spotify. Yeah. Uh, I have US Spotify, so. so – well, Get rid of that from the... Uh... <laughs> but, but no, I think it's okay to talk about, you know, because yeah. people have US Netflix and people... Are, but US Spotify works here in Australia. But why would you have US Spotify? Because I got it when I was over there. But why now wouldn't you transition? Wouldn't it be cheaper to have an Australian one? I don't know. I think it would be. Is it? With the exchange rate. Same catalogue? Absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, Probably change... better catalogue here. I'll it would change... be, be the same. But... I'll change to an Australian Spotify. So let, talk you. to me then about how... Or Apple Music. I'm I'm Sweden on the streaming streaming services. You choose whichever one you think is better. Okay, so how do I explain to a 12-year-old who's never – I've never seen her pay – she doesn't own one physical copy of anything. Yes. Um, She doesn't watch any live television. She watches everything on her phone. Yes. How do I explain to her the concept of paying for – like if she wants to hear her favourite song, she'll just watch it on YouTube. Yeah. Well – YouTube does give some money back to the industry, very little, and that's a major problem for the industry and it's a battle that we're fighting around the world at the moment. I think it's, it's about explaining to them that if you want access to all of these songs, there's a monthly fee that you, have to, that you pay for access mm. and it's about access now rather than ownership. Right. And that's you know, whether they're on Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube hopefully they're going to sites that are legal mm. and that money flows back to the industry. And whether that's a paid service or a free yeah. service supported by ads, then money's coming back so to the industry. You would have still been in university when Napster yeah. exploded. You must have gone, oh, fuck, every song ever. Let's go. Yeah, I, I mean, I did. Yeah. I was downloading Bootsy Collins live in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, and you I know what? I never did and maybe I was a Luddite and I was oh. still buying – CDs. Oh, I was at Channel V and we had this T1 connection to the office. Right. So I was just like broadbanding the shit out of everything. Yeah. Which is weird because you were kind of someone, a creative. Yeah. Making money in the creative industries. Well, uh, but yes, I was still buying CDs. Like, so to, to download things, then the, the, 
the trick then to get it onto iPods hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. So it was still difficult to, to listen uh, to. And, that they, and they, even the iPod, yeah, people forget that there was a, a couple-year period between when the first iPod came out and when legal iTunes came out. So there was a long period where basically the iPod was just a repository for pirated music. Mm. And the first ad campaign was, you know, Rip Mix Burn. Uh, and so, you know, it was a thousand songs in your pocket, but you couldn't buy any of them legally. Mm. So, you know, Apple kind of rebuilt itself on the back of, you know, turning a blind eye to what yeah. would be considered piracy. They then brilliantly were able to, you know, start making that into a legal market, which yeah. they did brilliantly with, with uh, the iTunes store and now they're transitioning into Apple Music. I mean, because once the iTunes store showed up, mm. the, I was very deliberate. The first album I ever bought on iTunes was Tea and Sympathy, Bernard Fanning. There you uh, are. New uh, record's out this week. It is too. Um, I was... I, I'm pretty sure I never downloaded unless I couldn't buy it anywhere, yeah. anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. Um, I would. I pretty much from then on, I downloaded everything legally because uh, not only <laughs> I have a moral conscience about it, uh, but also it was just always better quality. Yeah, it was always better quality. And I think that you know you wouldn't sanction it, but there could have been some moral argument when people would say, "Well, you know what? There's no, I can't get it anywhere legally." But for music, that, that argument doesn't hold at all. You can get everything you want legally. And in Australia, there's no uh, windowing of music. In fact, we get it first because every piece of music now usually is released on a Friday and Friday comes here before it does in the UK or the US. So mm. we end up getting music first. Right. So when, when it comes now to, say, for example, um, the, the getting – because ultimately um, – Who's Gigi Love at the moment? Um, oh, she loves a heaps of people. Let's say, for example, um, uh, Sean Mendes, right? Yeah. She digs Sean Mendes right now. Explaining to her, well, if Sean Mendes can't put food on his table, Sean Mendes can't record any more songs. And is, is that, is that, how do you explain to a, a teenager the difference between that person whom you love yeah. and is in their video holding money and cash and driving around cars, yeah. doesn't own any of that shit, and actually needs your money yeah. if they want to keep being your favourite artist? Yeah. You know, is, is that how you explain the, the, the morals of, of paying for music to a kid? Well, I, I don't yet have a teenager, so All I right. don't know how you convinced teenagers. I think so. I think you're talk, talking about the value and the respect. Mm. It's, you know, it's a basic respect of, you know, the same way I would, you know, that, that you need to go out and earn a living. These other people need to go out and earn a living mm. and the way they earn a living is by being paid for their work mm -hmm. and you need, you know, need to contribute to that. Yeah. So when, when we've seen an Apple but Music... But it's not any... Listen, to be, it's, it's been an argument that's been really hard to win. Yeah? Because once someone can access it for free, yeah. it's very hard to shut that gate. Absolutely. It's very hard to shut in their mind once you've had the idea of all this stuff just comes to me. Like I had to have this ex explanation to her about the other day about she couldn't get an, a particular season of something she wanted to find on, on Netflix... And then I found, well, she's watching it the other night. Where'd you find that? And she named the site. I'm like, I had to have this conversation about her, to her, like, when it goes on that site, you're not paying the people that make it. Yeah. And uh, bless her, she's such a beautiful kid. She, she didn't watch it on that site anymore. Raised her well. Well, raised very well. I'm yeah. very grateful yeah. that we have her in our lives. Um, but is that, is that the, because I'm sure somewhere, someone's still getting paid for that music. 
And is it the advertisers on those sites? Oh, on it, the pirate sites. Yeah. Oh, it's the pirates. Yeah. You know, so they're still getting paid. People absolutely. are still getting paid. It's just not the people who make it. Absolutely. You know, the money flows to the people running the site uh, right. and the ads that they're selling on that site. So, right. you, know, it's a, you know, money's flowing to the wrong people. Right. So when it comes to something like, because I remember having a conversation early when Spotify and Pandora first launched uh, with someone who was privy to the deal that they signed the deal with, I think it's, is it ASCAP, the American publishing? Yep. And they were like, oh, you're some little startup. Pay this much. Yeah. See what happens. And it was like some huge length of time that deal was. Mm. And I don't know if that deal has yet been renegotiated. It may have. I'm unaware. But then Pandora and Spotify explode and people now listen to the music using that streaming service and yet the artist, there was a great um, article written by um, Aloe Black about yeah. that Avicii song that he wrote. And he goes, I've got a check for $8,000 and this got played 156 million times. Doesn't work out. Mm. Like how do you then make sure doing in your job, how do you make sure those artists are looked after? It's, you know, it's complicated, but I think th- as these streaming services gain momentum, I mean, they can only, the streaming services work on the, the you know, people who subscribe, the, it goes into a pool of money and then that pool gets divvied up based on plays. Got it. Now, and that's a simplified version, but so the bigger the pool, the bigger the money that can flow back to the artists and the songwriters. And I think that pool has been small but growing. So once it gets to a bigger pool, then we, we're hopeful that the money starts flowing back to the artists and the labels. The other thing is that you've gone from a one-hit like where you get one check uh, because it's been downloaded or bought to an annuity stream. So you're getting that money over time as people listen to your music over time. And I think that's just a mind shift for artists to get their head around. So, you know, do we think that it can get back to where, where it was? I don't think it gets back to where it was from a CD perspective. But last year, you know, the Australian music record business was up up 5%, which is the first time in a long time. That's extraordinary. That it's growing. I mean, coming from a low base, but the trend seems to be up. So if we can continue to get people subscribing and we see Spotify is growing very well in Australia, Apple Music now have a relationship with Telstra where they're promoting that. And, you know, we're probably we're getting into the millions of people that are signing up for subscription services and that becomes a really, you know, legitimate business. So if I'm, as a music fan, mm. if I uh, if I want to support the artists, I need to get rid of my US Spotify account, get my Australian Spotify account. Well, I mean, that money still goes back to the artists in the US, but, you you know, better off supporting the Australian. I want to help in, you out, yeah, Dan. Yeah, industry than the Americans. Uh, but also the Australian um, iTunes uh, Apple Music is also uh, – is that weighted towards Australian? No, I mean I think Apple Music and Spotify are the two leading streaming services. Google is one as well. You know, listening to Australian artists on that definitely helps. If you're a fan of an Australian artist, go to their shows, buy, buy, buy one of their albums. You know, that's a great way to support them if you buy an album when, when it comes out. Uh, you know, vinyl's had a little bit of a resurgence – because I think people want to show their fandom and if they're real fans of a band to support them that way, buy a T-shirt, you know, just find ways to financially support the bands that you love. 
Yeah. You know, and it's usually about going and seeing them play and buying some merch or buying physical albums and then listening to their stuff on a paid streaming service. Right. There's a, a band called 30 Seconds to Mars. Hmm. Um, a, a friend of Is mine. Is that Jared Leto's band? Yeah. A friend of mine, her brother's in the band. And uh, we were having the conversation. He was like saying to her, 15 years ago, the album sales we're making and the shows were the album sales we're making would have been private jet money. Right. But now we're all in the back of the plane. Right. All of us. We're all in the economy class. Yeah. But when you when you look at the level of listens, concert tickets and things, it's like this is like U two level of people going to see them and U two level of listening. But the yeah. other end of it is just Yeah. It's, it's just not what it was. No. No. And I don't and it's unclear whether that – I don't think it'll ever go back to what it was, but yeah. we're hopeful that it'll, it's something that is sustainable. Well, and ultimately isn't that the thing that we want? Yeah. Is as Because the thing that music has is it's a time machine. It transports us to the place we first heard that record. Yeah. Instantly and very powerfully, more so than a photograph ever will. Yeah. Or a conversation with someone that you remember that moment with. If the quality of that goes down, then what is the, the quality of our reminiscing goes with it? You know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that to your 12-year-old Gigi, she, does, she didn't know what it was like. No. But that doesn't make her – that's not going to make her love the songs that she fell, fell in love with at 12 any less than you and I. No. Uh, and so we've just got to make sure we create – a healthy ecosystem that ensures that the next wave of artists still come through and still are able to create. And not everyone needs to be flying private planes, but they need to be earning enough that they can concentrate on their art. And most artists, yes, they'd all love to have a private jet and some of them still do. But really, if you're an Australian artist and you can earn a living doing what you love, then that is the goal. If you can wake up in the morning and say, well, I'm going to, I can go out and tour and write and play as a musician then, you know, I don't need to be super wealthy, but I need to be able to, you know, put food on the table for my family and support myself. And that's really what I talk about is creating sustainable careers. That, yeah. That if, if I, in my heart of hearts, if, if I were to say what, is the, what, is our, what should our mission be as an industry, it's about providing an ecosystem that allows sustainable careers in music. And not everybody who wants to be a musician has, you know, just – just, just by right should have that. But if you're super talented and you've got a fan base, you should have that. What do you want to see in the next five years? What do you want to do with ARIA? Uh, I want to help more of our artists get international recognition. I think they're starting to do that. Now, the ability for artists now to uh, increase their profile and, and get songs heard by people around the world is phenomenal. You know, I think we use the Arias as, you know, as an opportunity once a year in the lead up and then on the night to really showcase the best in Australia and that's now getting broadcast throughout Asia and, you know, picked up in, in the UK and, and US and that's really important. Working with the streaming services to make sure Australian artists are getting on playlists and having local playlists so that, not everything is programmed out of Stockholm or Silicon Valley. That is a 
if I look fused down the track, that's the biggest challenge. Stockholm, Spotify. Stockholm, Spotify. Yeah. Yes, and you know Silicon Valley, Apple, Google. Yeah. If if we if we're moving into a streaming world, which looks inevitable, till it's not, but you know for at least for the next five years, that's sort of where where we're moving, and that's how people are listening to music, and a lot of people are using playlists, program playlists in order to listen to music. That's how Gigi discovers new songs. Yeah. yeah. So how do we get? either local playlists that are things that Gigi wants to listen to or that the global playlists have a smattering of Australian artists because that really, you know, is going to be how kids Mm. discover music and we want to make sure they're discovering Australian music. You know where else she discovers music? Musically. That's amazing, man. What did she sing to me the other day? She sang last night in the car. She starts singing Frank Ocean. Like, how do you know Frank Ocean? She goes, oh, it's a musically. That's Frank Ocean. Yeah. And she and I drove around singing, I've been thinking about you. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, were thinking, yeah. So we were singing Frank Ocean together. It's crazy. It was the greatest. <laughs> it was so good. Well, carpool karaoke, that, that's, you know, that's, that's cool, a monster, isn't that's it? That's the cool, cool thing. That is, a, that is, a, that is an absolute, absolute. But that, I mean, really, the, the car is probably still the best place. Yeah. Yeah. And you go back, took me back when you asked what was it like recording. I mean, that always the, the test was. Whether you record in a good studio or a home studio, you'd burn that back in that. You'd burn a CD, and then you'd get in your car and you'd listen to it. That's your reference, and you'd drive around because you know how things sound out of your speakers. Sound in your car, and yeah. it's still, you know, the car is a surround sound. Mm. Awesome music experience. It really is. Yeah, and it's shared with friends usually. Shared with friends, and you've got you know, movement and. Yeah. You know, vision as well. So the excitement, yeah, there's a journey. Thanks for getting me back uh, uh, on the live stage doing some live TV, man. Oh, it was awesome. It was super fun. Killed it. it super fun doing Arias with you. That was a lot of fun. And I'll, I'll say this right now. I don't mind if you don't get me to do it again. I had a really great time. It's totally okay <laughs> if you get someone else to do it. Mate, you always got my vote. Ah, oh, man. It's, uh, it's, it's super fun doing the big live ones and it's super fun having, you know, in, well, it's in such, the room. It's such an incredible... Night, and I hope the people at home appreciate it because most of those people could, in and of themselves, play that stage, obviously. And to get all those incredible artists to come together in the one on the one night in the one room, and you know, and put rivalries and egos and everything aside, it's really pretty crazy. And the collaborations you managed to pull off, are yeah, great. the collaborations are amazing. And as you know, it's kind of it's a little bit like a swan. You know, we it, it feels hopefully it feels seamless, but there's a lot of stuff. You know, where even right up until you press go, you're still making changes Mate, in the middle of the show. Yeah, <laughs> and that's and it's rock and roll. But it, that's what I love about it. Yeah. It's That's the best part. Yeah, it's very rock and roll. Yeah. And, you know, the music industry and musicians aren't cookie cutter and they're not drones and they are personalities, which is why we love them. Uh, and it means that dealing with them is not a straight line. You know, it's not to get from A to B, you go that way. You have to go around in circles and back around the block and... Mm-hmm. and Move a dressing room or two. And, that, <laughs> and, that's, and that's part of the special nature. And it's, yeah. that's always something when you're dealing with sponsors and networks and mm-hmm. is explaining to them that sometimes things are happening not to spite anybody, you know, not, not because people are being difficult. That's just how they deal with the world. And I think sportsmen are very different. Because sportsmen are used to doing what they're told effectively, particularly team sport, because if you don't do 
what the coach says and what the team rules are, then you're out of the team. And so I think that sponsors and networks and people dealing with sport are much more used to saying, well, let's do it this way and that's how mm. it happens, whereas music is not like that, which adds to the special nature of it, but it adds to the degree of difficulty. Yeah, it's super fun. Uh, it's super fun and, you know, I love it and that's why I think that, you know, having been an artist, not to the level that guys we have performing, but having done... TV stuff and forming, you know what, where their head's at and where they're coming from and I hope that I can be their champion in those Well, I think it's really, it's a really, and I still think the ARIA awards and, and awards ceremonies are very important to get people to top of mind, especially when you've got, and I'm pretty sure every single person that took the stage uh, last year's show at least, every one of them had pretty much just stepped off a plane from the US or yeah. Europe and they had just been on the international stage. So they're absolutely, without doubt, world-class musicians. Absolutely. And being able to showcase that in one night is a, is a wonderful thing. And yeah. to be able to go, look, our, you know, our Australian music industry is, last night, bless them, in Brisbane, People's Day of the exhibition, like the Echo, like the Royal Easter Show, the big Saturday night, the first right. or the Good Friday, like the one that everybody has off. Yeah. They had a Cold Chisel tribute band and a Keith Urban tribute band. Yeah, wow. All right. Come on. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. We have world-class bands and people will come out to well, see Well, I them. think Katie Noonan's just got the Queensland Music, Queensland Festival gig. Right. So, As a director of the yeah, festival? Director. Yeah, So cool. I'm sure she's going to put some cool stuff going on up there. Well, this is this, but this is the echo. This is the you know the the, the great masses of people right. who came out to see the cows and the show rides and the show bags. It's called the Yekka. The Yekka. The exhibition, mate. Oh, the Yekka, mate. Right. Yekka. Yeah, they 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 could be putting on some. Well, I think new, some talent. Some well, what new happened? Talent. I think they you know they brought up a Ricky Lee or they brought up you know, this that and the other, and eventually they're like, nah, these people are from the suburbs, just give them give them some chisel, give them some urban. Yeah, we can't get the real thing. Fine, <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, but the, the awards nights, I think that they're, they're really, really important and they're, and they're super fun. And I, and I shit you not, I have no problem at all. Like I had, the two years I did it, brilliant fun. You brilliant. Were, and you, are, you were brilliant. Brilliant fun. And, you know, I personally think, you know, if you get me, that's great. I'm 42. Yeah. All right. You look good. But I appreciate that. For radio. But, you know, when you've got blokes like Scott Tweedy or blokes like, you know, Liv Fyland, ladies like Liv Fyland, people who are – like right in there, yeah. right in the in the in the. We, we haven't done a, a great job in Australia, I think, of creating the next music TV stars. I think you you guys did it with with yeah. Idol, with Idol, probably the last and V before that. Yeah. yeah, but music TV isn't is, is kind of gone. No, but even someone who was you know, I mean Molly, yeah, the, the, that iconic. But again, uh, that, that's that's gone. Mm. And look, if you want to, whoever you want to get hosted this this year, if you want to get me to come and produce them and work with them on the night, so they're amazing on camera, I'd love to do that. Yeah. But whoever it is, like I said, like I'm I'm these people's dads, you know, <laughs> when we host it. Yeah, but you still, you know, you still. Uh, I'll say yes to it. But it's a delayed adolescence. What I'm a, I'm a firm believer in. I I want to train up the person that will take my job from me. That would nothing would make me happier. Right. Nothing would make me happier. Is that you or me? Um, yeah. Nothing would make me happier. Yeah. All right. And to be there for maybe the, maybe we we hold a reality TV show that you have to give a rose to the next uh, Aria host. Yeah. <laughs> Who would it be? 
I don't know, but you know, tw- what do we what do we have? Twelve contestants. They they <laughs> go out on dates with you. <laughs> through an obstacle, put them through an obstacle course. Exactly. Hey, right, yeah. You got to you got to talk for a minute longer than you thought you'd have to, while a director's assistant you're counts you down and tells you to look at a different camera while you're being told to move because a giant piece of set is coming down over your head. So don't get killed. Go. I think it could work. I think it's a great show. Fun, man. Hey, yeah. um, thanks for coming around. Mate, absolute pleasure. I hope I didn't keep you too late. No, no, not at all. Everybody's, all good. Everybody's fine. I'm on. a massive podcast fan now. It's yeah. all, since, we, since we met and you were telling me about podcasts, I've been podcast. It's great, right? Yeah. I've, uh, my favourites, other than yours, of course, Alec Baldwin, here's the thing. It's extraordinary. Ugh. Access, man. My God, the guy's got access. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I've been listening to Malcolm Gladwell, Revisionist right. History, which is fantastic. He's got a way of telling a story. He's got a really great way of telling a story. Have you read his books? Yeah. Yeah. See? See what we're doing here, This is how it works. Solving the, solving the problems of the world. As we do it. All right, I'm going to take your photo real quick. Okay. Okay, sweet. Thanks. Well, that's it for Dan Rosen. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, Dan. I really appreciate that you, you did it, mate, and you made time out of your day to, to come over to Rancho Relaxo and have a chat. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Once again, you can support the show, patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. As little as five bucks a month is all it takes to get access to those exclusive episodes. And uh, once again, if you want to have a listen to those exclusives and you don't have five bucks a month, that's okay. Just uh, leave a review on iTunes. I'll choose one random reviewer next week and give them access to the exclusives so far as a thank you for saying so. Hope you have a fantastic week. Um, I love you for listening. Take care of yourself. Hug someone. And uh, yeah. Until we talk next time, sleep well, dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.